For those of you that don't know me, my name is Frank Lucas. I am one of the pastors here at Community Covenant Church. Uh, Kate and I were just reminiscing about this, but we've been here for 13 years now, and uh, we are so pumped to be a part of this church community. Um, we we love serving you and just and just the the just the relationships that have formed. It's just uh, such a blessing. Uh, but this morning we're going to continue on in our series, Read the Red, which is an in-depth look at the Beatitudes. Uh, which is the opening portion of arguably the most sermon uh, ever given, the Sermon on the Mount, shared by Jesus, of course. Um, but before we get there this morning, and before we took at the, uh, take a look at the third beatitude, I want to start in chapter 4 of the book of Matthew, if we will. It's in Matthew fa- chapter 4, um, so close. Um, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And what I love about this is this is really a summary of Jesus's ministry here on earth. Jesus was to preach and to proclaim the kingdom of God. He was to teach the way of the kingdom of God, and he was also demonstrating the purpose and power of the kingdom of God through healing. Preach, teach, and demonstrate. This is who we as a church are called to be, what we are called to do. Just a couple of short chapters later in the book of Matthew, in chapter uh, 9, verse 35, we, we see another verse that is almost identical to Matthew chapter 4. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Again, preach, teach, and demonstrate. And when we read through the Gospel of Matthew, what I love is that we see these two verses, nearly identical, separated by just a few short chapters. But what we see in between is so important. It's Jesus actually doing these things. In Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we hear Jesus share with us the Beatitudes, proclaiming the kingdom here and now and also yet to be. The second half of Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and 7, we see Jesus teaching the way of the kingdom, followed by chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, where Jesus is going out and demonstrating the purpose and power of the kingdom. And the reason I wanted to start with that this morning and highlight that, it's quite simple. It's the fact that we, sometimes we want to look at verses, we want to look at passages in complete isolation, but we can't do that. We have to work really hard to not do that. We have to look at the entirety of the scriptures. In a couple of minutes, we're going to look at one verse from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 5. We're going to look at this, but it's important that we remember Matthew 5, verse 5, blessed are the meek, is part of a greater passage, which is part of an even larger passage. It's one verse, part of one chapter, part of one book, which is part of a collection of books we know as the New Testament, which is part of the Bible, both the old and new, and the, entire, the Bible in its entirety, it has but one narrative, which is to proclaim the, the good news, the coming of the kingdom through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and we need to understand this every single time we open God's word. We need to be reminded of this. And, and so what I, what I love is that over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Greg has been sharing with us uh, about the kingdom of God and and its coming here on earth. And and what he shared was that when Jesus came the first time, what Jesus did was establish the kingdom of God here on earth. He establishes it here and now. But it won't be realized in its fullness until his return, where he will consummate the kingdom of God. 
we, right now, we have both the privilege and the responsibility of living in the in-between. We have the privilege and responsibility in living in the already, but not yet. I love the illustration that Greg used last week. Uh, he was standing up here, and I was watching online, but it was just powerful. He, he, he said Jesus, Jesus, he loved us so much that he came down to, to, to preach and to demonstrate and to teach us, but what he did was he reached out into eternity with his power, with his might. He grabbed hold of the kingdom of God. He brought it back to earth, into our present, into our reality, and what did he do? He staked it in the ground. I don't think staked is a word but he, maybe it is, he, he, he stuck it in the ground with his cross, with his cross. And, and it's such a powerful image. And, and it's only through that that we have access to the power and presence of God here and now. Another way to put this is that Jesus brought the kingdom of God through earth, uh, excuse me, uh, to earth through his power, and as a result, we can enjoy foretastes of it right now. But for the full experience of the kingdom of God, we will have to wait. We will have to wait. And so this morning, what I want to do before we get into uh, the third beatitude is i just like to go through uh, and read all the beatitudes together. Or maybe not together, but we'll read it uh, as a group. Uh, and if you'd like, in your Bibles, on your seats, you can turn there. Matthew chapter 5, that's found in page 802. Uh, we would love for you to turn there. If you do not have a Bible, um, this is our gift to you. We want you to know that uh, God's word is accessible and available. We want to make that to, uh, available to everyone. But the, the truth is this. It has the power to change your life. And, and so if you do not have one, please take this. If you have a friend that needs one, please take one and bring it uh, to them. It's so important. All right, so Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start right in verse 3. Ready? Nope. All right, the Beatitudes. Chapter 5, verse 3. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute, and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. And so here we are. We have the graphic here that we've been sharing over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and what it shows, if we can pull it up, is Jesus bringing the kingdom of God here on earth, here and now. And what we see is as we go through the Beatitudes, uh, there's an emptying that takes place through the power of Jesus Christ. You can't do this on your own. What happens is we try to do this, but the reality is we need Christ to help us empty ourselves. And then at some point, uh, as we get through, there's this hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we begin to be filled up through the power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. But what I love about this is this is a cyclical process. 
And, and what would happen, what's happening is we're emptying ourselves as followers of Christ and we begin to fill ourselves up with God. But then as we are filled with Christ, we begin to empty ourselves more and round and round we go. And that is the journey of the Christian faith. That is what it looks like to be a disciple. There's an emptying and there's a filling, but all of it takes place only through surrender. Only of it, it all takes place only through surrender. So with that, what I want to do is I want to take some time and I want to dive into the third beatitude, which is Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, and it says this, blessed or blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, now this is an extremely bold statement, a very bold statement. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meekness is not a word that we hear often. I would argue it's a very misunderstood word. It's, it's not something that we use in language uh, very frequently, uh, especially in our go, 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 24-7, 365 uh, culture. But I think it's because we don't actually understand what the word meek actually means. Culture says meekness is weakness. But that couldn't be further from the truth. That is not what the Bible is talking about. This is not blessed are the weak for they will inherit the earth. Quite the contrary, actually. You may have noticed, though, uh, in sharing this, blessed are the meek, this is a different translation than what we read a few moments ago. And the reason for that uh, is that some translations use the word humble, some use humility, some use gentle or gentleness, and most of the original translations or some of the older ones use the word meekness, and I prefer the word meek, and I'm going to share a little bit about that here. But regardless of the translation you're reading, Regardless of the translation you're reading, and regardless of the word choice that's being used to fully understand what's being said, sometimes we actually have to dig a little deeper. Sometimes we need to go beyond just scratching the surface. And so, if you will, I want to take a couple of moments, if you'll allow, but you don't really have a choice. Um, I'm going to get a little academic on you. This is not something I do very often when I share, but I think it's really helpful, so I want to encourage you to bear with me. Blessed are the meek. Now, the Greek word that's used here for meek or meekness is praus. I'm doing my best here, all right? But praus. And it's often used in regards to horse training. Interesting. Trainers would go into the mountains or the wilderness in search of wild horses that they could train. And after months and months and months of training, what they would do is they would take these horses and they would break them into various categories. Some horses, send them back to the wild. No good, can't use you. Other horses were a little broken down, so they put them to work and used them for carrying loads. Some horses uh, were good for travel and purposes like that, but the most prestigious horses, the ones that excelled in their training, do you know what they became? War horses. They were ready for battle. They were ready for battle. And when a horse passed the conditioning required to be a war, ho- a war horse, one that was fit for battle, it would be described as praus. It would be described as meek, which is so interesting to me. These war horses had power under authority. They were not weak. They had tremendous strength under control. They were able to give up their natural tendency to be wild, unruly, and out of control. They were extremely disciplined. They didn't respond to the circumstances around them, but they did respond to the slightest touch, the slightest nudge from their master. They were meek. They were praus. 
Within the scripture, the word meek, though, has an even deeper meaning. It has an even deeper significance. Meekness isn't just a focus on a person's outward behavior, though that is an element. I would say it like this. Meekness is a posture of both internal and external strength accompanied with grace in which we accept God's dealings with us as good without dispute or resistance. Meekness is strength. Meekness is strength, but strength under control. Now, I also think it's important that we point out that this posture of meekness is not attainable apart from Christ. It's simply not. A a horse cannot become meek on its own. It needs someone to train it and show it the way in which it should go. And and so this is so vitally important to understand that there's nothing, there's no steps that I can list for you. I'm going to share some characteristics of meekness, but it's not a list of to-dos. It's a list of attributes, right? But if we look at the fruit of the Spirit in in Galatians chapter 5, we read this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The word gentle there, I did a little word study, got into the etymology of it, if you will. You know what word is used there? Praus. Meekness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a posture we can take on our own. It's not a fruit of us simply trying harder. And so what I'd like to do with the remainder of our time this morning is I want to look at the characteristics, the fruit of a meek person. And so to do that, we're going to turn to Psalm chapter 37. And the reason we're going to Psalm chapter 37 is that as I, as I dove in and as I started researching a little bit and reading uh, around the Beatitudes, I found that Beatitude number three, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, is almost a direct quote from King David in Psalm chapter 37 verse 11, which reads, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. It's almost a direct quote. The word land in both Greek and Hebrew means earth. Uh, It means earth. Um, And also the word peace and prosperity here, um, it could seem a little funny, right, when we think about prosperity. I think especially given today's culture, today's climate, the the, sometimes the issue that we have with TV evangelists and some of the folks that we see if we flip through the channels late at night or early in the morning, whatever it could be, um, I think we sometimes get anxious about this word prosperity when we talk about that within the church. But this verse isn't talking about prosperity in the way that we think of it. Both Jesus and King David are not talking about prosperity in, in the context of earthly riches. They're talking about it in the context of kingdom riches. Peace and prosperity in this verse are referring to shalom. The actual translations, if you go back to it, prosperity, shalom. And we think about shalom as it should be, meaning the kingdom of God, the fullness of the kingdom of God, realizing life to its absolute fullest. So if we're to paraphrase Psalm 37 verse 11, the meek will inherit the earth and enjoy the fullness of the kingdom of God. See, that's what Jesus is getting at. That's what King David is talking about. Now, if we go and we look at the preceding verses uh, in Psalm chapter 37, we're going to see some of the characteristics of meekness. So what I want to do is I just want to read through those real quick, and we're going to talk about a few of them. Verse 5, it says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make you righteous. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. Your vindication 
like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Verse 8, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. And a little while, excuse me, a little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. I, I love this passage of scripture. I love how it, it lines up so nicely with what Jesus is sharing about the kingdom of God and how he reaches into eternity and brings it and stakes it into the ground with the cross. But if, if you go through this passage, you see uh, a whole bunch of characteristics about those who are meek. And I just want to point them out to you real quick, and we're going to talk about just a few. Meek people are people who are trusting. They commit. They are confident. They're still. Meek people wait on the Lord. Meek people are not anxious. Meek people are gentle. But for the sake of time this morning, I want to look at just a couple of these real quick. The first characteristic we're going to dive into this morning is that meek people trust in God. They put their faith in God. They put their trust in God, even when it doesn't make any sense. They believe that God will work for them and vindicate them when life and others are opposing them. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it's a very famous passage. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, not with your head. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him. Again, this idea of surrender. And he will make your path straight. Trust with your heart, not with your head. Surrender and God is going to direct you. Biblical meekness is rooted in a deep confidence that God is for you and not against you. And when you think about that language, God being for you, not against you, we can't help but think of Romans chapter 8 where Paul says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, I love this verse, but the problem with this verse is it's often so misunderstood. Does this mean that all things are going to work out for our good, for my good? It absolutely does. But it doesn't mean that all things are going to work according to my plan or your plan. And there's something vitally important for us to understand there. God is for you, absolutely. He's not against you. But that doesn't mean he's for your plans. He's for your good. That, that is so critical to understand. Because sometimes things don't go the way we draw them up. Life happens, Right? Obstacles come our way. People oppose us. We get sick. We get like all these, we lose our jobs. And these things are not part of our plan. That doesn't mean that God's not good. It just means it's not part of our plan. God is still for you. His will, not ours. We trust in God. Meek people trust in God. The second characteristic of a meek individual I want to look at briefly is this someone who commits their way to the Lord. The Hebrew word for commit here is roll. It literally means to roll. Once you've put your trust in God because of his trustworthiness, once you believe that God is truly for you and you begin to understand this, not just in your head but in your heart, you'll be able to roll your way onto God. And when I say your way, I don't just mean your path. I don't just mean your next steps. What I mean is this. Your way is your career, your business, your decisions. You can roll your worries, your relationships, your fears. You can roll your disagreements, 
your marriage, your anxieties, your frustrations, your health, your sickness, all these things. You can roll these things onto God because a meek person understands that they're unable to do it on their own. A meek person trusts in, the God, trusts in God and they're able to commit to God's way, not their own, because they understand that they're not capable. A meek person understands their innate sinfulness and their need for a savior. When you come face to face with your brokenness, when you come face to face with your inability to be your own savior, it becomes easier, it becomes more natural and necessary to roll your ways unto God. Don't hold on to it. Bring it to the foot of the cross and let God do what only God can do. We have this tendency to want to figure it out on our own, but he's saying, listen, you can't do that. Commit to the Lord. Give it to me. Bring it to the foot of the cross and let me be God and let you be you. You be creation, I'm creator. Don't get that mixed up, guys. That's what he's trying to remind us of here. Meek people trust in God. They commit, but they're also still. One of my favorite passages of scripture in all the Bible is Psalm 46.10. I have a, a big plaque of this in my office. It was one of my uh, first sermons I ever shared here at Community Covenant. Be still and know that I am God. Here's the thing, church. In today's culture, it is almost impossible to slow down and to be still. Thanks to our phones and our tablets, our computers, our laptops, we have email and text available, and then Facebook Messenger and direct messages and all this stuff. Throw on top of that all the TV shows that you want to watch via Comcast or whatever, Cox or Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and whatever streaming service you, you subscribe to, YouTube, like whatever it is. Man, you add all that stuff into our desire to want to be loved and liked and, and our desire to please other people. It is almost impossible to be still. It's almost impossible to be still. But stillness is vitally important to knowing God. You see, church, you can be busy and you can know a lot about God. But you can't be busy and know him. If you want to truly know who God is, you need to quiet your soul. To be still is to allow yourself to remember all of who God is in relation to who you are. Without being still, you lose your perspective of your own brokenness. Without being still, you lose perspective of who God is. When you're busy, it's all about you. But when you're still, it becomes all about him. A vital characteristic of meekness is stillness. Meek people trust in God. They commit to God. They're still before him. And the fourth characteristic I want to share with you this morning is this. Meek people wait on the Lord. Verse 7a, it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. I feel sometimes we tend to swap out the word patiently for passively, right? It's more convenient. Be still and wait passively for God. Wait passively on God. We are participants, though. This is not who we're called to be. 
We are called to be participants, not simply bystanders. Waiting on God does not mean sitting on the sidelines. Followers of Christ are called to reject passivity. Patiently is not passivity. They are different things. And, and I can think no, of no greater illustration of this than in the hospitality industry. You ever go to a restaurant and have a tremendous uh, time with whoever you're with? Like you just have, you have a great meal. Everything is awesome. You're just really enjoying it. It's one of those places you give five stars on Yelp or whatever it may be. You know what I find interesting about that? Do you know who that falls on? It's typically the wait staff, isn't it? Right? If you go out to a tremendous restaurant, you can have the best meal in the world. You can have the best steak delivered to your table. But if the waiter or the waitress is terrible, you're probably not going to go back. And on the same side of that, or excuse me, on the flip side of that, if you go to a restaurant and you have a terrible meal, all right, the steak does not come out the way you like it, all right, it's medium. I don't know why anyone would do that, or me, heaven forbid, medium well. If you're a vegetarian, just fast forward, right? It, if it comes out and it's not the way you want it, a good waitress or a good waiter is going to help you. They're going to make it right. And what happens? It, it somehow redeems all of that. It, it all comes down to the wait staff. You want someone who's attentive, but not pushy. Someone who sees your needs, they respond to them. Someone who checks in on you and serves you what you're asking for. Think about that for a second. Imagine this. You go to a steakhouse and you order a New York strip because that's what we, I just went to Portland last week and uh, celebrated my anniversary with Kate and I ordered a nice New York strip and some potatoes. Oh, it was wonderful. My worst nightmare is that my waitress would have been a vegetarian and been like, you know what? Not your plans, my plans. I don't like the New York strip. I think you made a bad choice. I'm going to bring you a veggie burger. That would have been awful, right? That would have been terrible. You want someone that's seeking after your own interest, not their own. Can you imagine, can you imagine that for a second? Now, now, here's the thing. Their job, their purpose is not to serve themselves. Who is it to serve? Who, wh whose job, like, who are they supposed to serve? You. They're supposed to serve you. See, to wait on God, it's not passive. It's active. To wait on God is not to serve your own interests, but to serve his interests. His will, not your own. And, and sometimes, we, we, if, if you go back to that analogy of the waitstaff for a moment, we get to this point where we start to serve our own things. We start to serve our own plans. We start to try to navigate life our own way by based on what we think is going to be best for us. But what is God saying? No, no, no. To wait on me is not to serve your own interests. You need to serve my interests. And trust me, my interests are way better than your interests. My ways are not your ways. Follow me. Come after me. Seek me. Pursue me. And I will direct you where you should be because I know where you should be. I created you. That's what God is saying. Furthermore, to, to combine uh, this idea of still, uh, excuse me, waiting on the Lord with stillness for a moment. Have you ever been to a restaurant and been treated as a VIP? Oh man, I, I'll be honest with you. I've, I've been in a couple instances where I've been able to do this in my life, where I've been able to name drop and all of a sudden the service just gets tremendous. I love it. But, but think about why. The, the server is always there ready to take care of you because they know how important you are. Right? They, they know that you're someone special, or they know that you know someone special. Right? They're ready with a refill. They're ready to be attentive. They're making sure everything's right. Before the food comes out, they actually check to make sure it's the right meal, like all those sorts of things. And, and it's awesome. But why do they do that? They do that because they know who you are. When we are still enough to know who God is, 
and then we wait on him knowing who he is, you can't help but wait on God actively and attentively. You just can't help but do it. You still need to be patient. You can't force his timeline, right? Nothing worse than, I'm going to beat this analogy to death, nothing worse than a server coming and like taking your, like, whoa, right? Like, don't, don't take that yet. Nothing worse than them, they, they bring you the appetizer and then all of a sudden, like your entree's right there or whatever. You, you get the idea, all right? But waiting on God is not passive, it's active. And when we are still enough to understand who God is in relation to who we are, it becomes that much easier to be still and to serve him actively. So we spent a few moments talking about the characteristics of meekness, but real quick I want to touch on before we close the second half of the verse. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Katie and I have four beautiful children, three girls and a little boy. My, my youngest, Frankie, um, I love him dearly, um, but he's Frankie, and he is just like his mom. Um, <laughs> she's not in here, I can say that. Um, he's not, he's actually like me. Um, he's extremely stubborn and a very determined young man. Well, anyway, Frankie very rarely makes it through the entire night in his own bed. And uh, let me tell you, I'm not sure why none of our other kids had this problem, but Frankie is a bed hopper. He plays musical beds every single night, and it drives us crazy. Every night, we explain the importance of why he needs to spend the night in his own bed. Frankie, you need to do this. It's important for you to get rest. It's going to help you grow, blah, 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 blah. We go through this, and then that doesn't work, so we go through and we explain the importance of why we all need rest. Mommy and Daddy need to get a good night's rest. If you keep coming down, it's really hard for us to do that, so on and so forth. Uh, We explain all this the best we can, but at the end of the day, do you know what works for him? Frankie. (laughs) Wasn't expecting you to actually say that out loud. Um, Frankie, if you spend the whole night in your bed, tomorrow after school, I'm going to take you to the dollar store. Right? Don't judge my parenting. All right, this isn't a, a, a teaching on parenting. This is not that. This is not best practices. However, I'm, I'm trying to make a point. To little Frankie, staying in his bed is difficult. He has no desire to do it. It's hard. He, he doesn't understand the benefits of it. If he did, I wouldn't have to explain it to him every night, and I wouldn't be broke by going to the dollar store. All right? I wouldn't have to entice him with some sort of reward. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus was bribing his disciples. But, you see, in the same way, meekness, meekness is difficult. Meekness is hard. If it wasn't difficult, Jesus wouldn't need to follow up the blessed are the meek with some sort of reward, would he? He would have just said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He just would have gone through, blessed are the meek, and then keep going. He just would have rambled off this list. He wouldn't say the what and the why and the how. Like, he, w- he wouldn't share all of that. But that's not what he does. Jesus gives us assurances and promises in verse 5 and also again in verse 12. In verse 12 it says, For a great reward awaits you in heaven. See, I believe Jesus gives his promises, or excuse me, gives this promise to the disciples to provide strength and resolve to continue on in their meekness because it ain't easy. Meekness is difficult. And it's not attainable apart from Christ. And let's be honest, following Jesus isn't exactly a cakewalk either. I wish it was. I wish there was some passage in the Bible that we could point to and be like, yeah, it's supposed to be easy. But it never says that. But what is promised to us is that, oh man, is it worth it? 
It is so worth it. Church, the bottom line is this. The quiet stillness and vulnerability of meekness is both beautiful and painful. It goes against our inerrant sinful nature and it is not attainable on our own accord. It requires supernatural strength. Strength only available through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, the Beatitudes, they're both a celebration and an invitation. It's a celebration of the coming of the kingdom of God. It's a celebration to the disciples for their choice to follow him. But it's also an invitation to a whole new way of living life. If we go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, we see that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his closest friends. Yeah, there were crowds, there were multitudes, but what does it say? Jesus went up to the mountainside, he sat down, and he began to speak to his disciples who gathered around him. It was an intimate setting where they hung on every word he was saying. And Jesus, what was he doing? He was proclaiming the kingdom of God, celebrating with his disciples, but also know that there were crowds that were listening in. There were lots of people listening in. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of his teachings, we hear that Jesus, uh, when Jesus finished saying, excuse me, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed is what we read. See, for them, they were just listening in, but this was an invitation to something completely different. See, the point is this. Whether you are here this morning as a disciple, as a committed follower of Christ, or whether you're here as part of the crowd just listening in. What's not important is how you got here. What's not important is how you made it through those doors. That's not what matters. What matters is that you're here. What matters is that you're at the foot of the cross. So I'd like you to consider this invitation as we wrap up. The passage I shared back on Labor Day weekend from Matthew chapter 11 where he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, we might be a right-to-farm community here in rural Rehoboth, Massachusetts, but I don't know about you, but I'm not sure we all really understand what it means to be yoked. You see, in biblical times, to be yoked was when you would take a, a, a more mature ox uh, with, and you would yoke it to a younger ox that needed to be trained up so they would work together. And the more experienced ox would, would share with the younger ox, help it learn the, the proper pace and the proper rhythm. It would help it learn the proper responsiveness. It would help it learn the right and wrong behaviors. It would help it learn the proper posture. See, over time, the qualities of the experienced animal would begin to rub off on the younger, the younger one. So perhaps for you this morning, the invitation is for you to take on the yoke of Jesus. Maybe it's for the very first time to accept this whole new way of life. Or perhaps the invitation for you this morning is to, is to step back in to the yoke. 
with Jesus. You've begun to wander. You've begun to be yoked to worry. Or maybe you're yoked to fear. Maybe this morning you're yoked to depression. You're yoked to addiction. For some, it could be pride, it could be selfishness, it could be guilt, it could be shame. Whatever it is that you're yoked to this morning, unless it's Jesus Christ, it needs to change. So whether this is the first time, the second time, the third time, or the hundredth time, when we yoke ourselves to the Son of God, we'll begin to learn the spiritual quality of meekness. And over time, we'll begin to look more like him. We'll begin to experience life in a whole new way. We'll begin to experience kingdom living here and now and also yet to be on earth as it is in heaven.